following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, let's open them up to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. As you all are aware, most of you, anyway, if you're not because of age necessarily, but maybe just from watching movies that are set into an older area, you know, time era, uh, like the 1940s, 1950s, there was a time in America when every man who wanted to be taken seriously, wore a hat in public, right? Cool, those cool, whatever kind of hats they were referred to. Not like ball caps that many wear today, but they were those, like a detective kind of hat. I don't know how else to explain it. (laughs) That was simply the cultural expectation in the 1940s and 50s. Leave the house, grab the hat. Step indoors, remove the hat. There was an entire unspoken, unwritten hat etiquette <laughs> that governed the who's and where's and when's of hat wearing. The truth is, wearing a hat didn't make one respectable no more than wearing a suit and tie makes one a professional, right? The fact is, fashions change. We're well aware of that, aren't we? Styles flux. And what was considered modest in one generation ends up being considered stuffy in another. Nevertheless, without denying the reality that customs and styles change, constantly change, in our culture, we also have to be aware of and we must admit that what we wear and how we present ourselves on the outside often sends a message of what others can expect of what is on the inside of us. I think thinking people know that in every culture, what we wear on the outside communicates something about our allegiances and our values, our identity, our beliefs, our interpretation of the person when we make, you know, when we see them may not necessarily be correct. They might be wrong, but that doesn't change the fact that these cultural customs intentionally or unintentionally convey character or the lack thereof, right? So for example, here's, here's an example. We see someone who we don't know, a complete stranger, a young man, and he might, he might be a really wonderful young man. But he's wearing, we notice, a T-shirt that has Charles Manson on the front <laughs> and a pentagram on the back. What are your thoughts going to be? You with me? Yeah. Let's be honest. Now, we're not talking profiling here. (laughs) We're just talking the undeniable reality. Now, part of the blame, I think, would be upon the young man. What on earth was he thinking? (laughs) 
in terms of what he would be communicating by his choice of wardrobe that day. You see what I'm saying? And so it's important. It matters because what people see on the outside is going to be communicating a message. And what message, folks, as the body of Christ, do we want to be communicating? <laughs> this brings us to the situation that Paul addresses in chapter 11. You see, basically, Paul asks his readers to consider what their own style of dress might be communicating in their own cultural setting. First century Mediterranean area. Okay, it's Corinth. Now, this is a really, really very important question that he puts out there for Paul's readers, which would include us today, because believers are to honor one another. Amen? And we are to represent Jesus Christ to the world because the world will inevitably, undeniably, folks, you know this, form its opinions about the Savior based on the visual image that is reflected by his people. Do you agree or disagree? In chapter 7, Paul answered the Corinthians' questions about marriage. In chapters 8 through 10, he addressed their questions regarding, regarding, regarding <laughs> Christian freedom and liberty. Here in chapter 11, he'll discuss God's divine order. Emphasis there, okay? God's divine order with regards to responsibly honoring one another and our Savior and King as well. Now, let's look at the first couple of verses, chapter 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, we if you were here last week, we ended with chapter 11, verse 1, and you see that we are beginning again with verse 1 because it's a hinge kind of verse. Because he, Paul, what he had just said in that first verse, follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ, he hinges and swings right into the remaining part of this 11th chapter when he says in verse 2, I praise you. Follow my example as I follow Christ. And then he says, and I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Well, that's, that's kind of good to know. So Paul echoes the statement made earlier. So you see, in chapter 10, Paul encourages the Corinthians to follow his example of surrendering his own rights. Remember this? his own rights and privileges for the sake of others, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the kingdom. And then here in chapter 11, he praises the Corinthians for following the teachings. So when we see the word here, traditions, it's really talking about the teachings that Paul had passed on to them, that he had given them while living with them for that year and a half that he spent with them. They remembered him, he says, following his example taking hold of the teachings 
that he had taught them. What is that saying to us? Paul's words demonstrate that not everything the church had been doing in Corinth <laughs> was wrong. <laughs> we may have kind of gotten that in impression with what we've been covering so far, but not everything was wrong. There were praiseworthy elements, but also as well, there were areas of concern. Obviously, and then not everybody in Corinth had taken Paul's words to heart. Some had drifted from his instruction, creating divisions and cliques within the body of Christ. So Paul is steering them back to a doctrinal foundation, ultimately looking to Jesus Christ himself as their example. And so he begins with, as I've already alluded to, presenting to the Corinth church God's divine order. Now, look at verse 3. He says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, we want to make sure we understand that the Bible doesn't just randomly toss around do's and don'ts, but rather our, it, it does refer to and talk about our attitudes and actions and how they are to conform to God's character, plan, purpose, and his divine order. This is why Paul lays a firm doctrinal foundation. He starts with a reminder about God's order of headship and humility, okay? From a biblical perspective, from heaven's perspective, we lose this in our society, but true headship will never, ever be absent of true humility. Are you with me? You cannot really have one without the other. The key to understanding this verse that we've just read here in verse 3 is the word head. It actually shows up three times just in this third verse, 14 times between verses 3 and 16. It refers literally to the physical head, but it also is used in a figurative sense, referring to authority the authority that you find in a chain of command, okay? So Paul uses the word switching between the figurative and the literal senses throughout this chapter. So then head refers to leadership, refers to authority. Therefore, this is how the verse could be read. It could read, a man is responsible to Christ." A woman is responsible to her husband, and Christ is responsible to God. Did you see what Paul just did there? Everybody responsible to somebody. <laughs> it's a divine order, a chain of command. So then, since Christ is not a dictator, a ruthless dictator, the husband is not to be either, nor is the wife to be considered and thought of as just some kind of domestic doormat. 
There is equality in all of this as we're going to see. Now, here's what I want us to hear. Jesus, who is our example, whom we are to reflect, amen? amen. Gladly, willingly, voluntarily submitted to the authority of the Father. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Does this mean that he was then inferior to the Father? Absolutely not. Philippians, Philippians chapter 2 makes it clear that Jesus chose to humble himself and come to this earth and to experience what he experienced on our behalf. So too, the woman who chooses to submit to the authority of her husband does so not out of inferiority, but of Christ honoring humility. That's important to know. The same would be true for the husband. He is to humbly honor Christ in his God-given servant leader role. Look at verse 4 now. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. You know, we read that today, and that makes absolutely no sense to us, doesn't it? What in the world? <laughs> Here's a great way to remember the difference between praying and prophesying. Are you ready? Praying is talking to God about people. Prophesying in the biblical sense, you know, forget about the idea of foretelling, but prophesying biblically is talking to people about God. Praying we're talking to God about people, prophesying, talking to people about God. Now, Paul uses the word head twice in verse 4. The first head referring to a man's physical head. However, the second time that he uses the word, it is referring to his spiritual head, our spiritual head, men, which is who? Jesus Christ, right? So man is not to do what would bring shame to his head. His covering. Not a hat. But his Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything that we do in our lives is to bring honor and pleasure to our King. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Some context is needed. First century contents. You see, in the Roman Empire, men commonly covered their heads with their what we would call hoodies today. <laughs> in their day, they called them togas. You know, a hood that was, would have been attached to like a long kind of robe. They would cover their heads with their togas as they performed pagan worship rituals. Okay? Now, can you see where Paul's going with this? Therefore, Paul warns against adopting this head covering in worship of Christ because in Paul's days, that would have been mixed up, causing confusion between what the pagans were doing to their false gods, who we talked about last week were being done and the demonic being involved with that to 
worshiping Jesus Christ. So there needed to be some clarity there. There needed to be some some separating apart. And so Paul says, "Don't, don't mix it up. Don't bring confusion to the Christian worship service. Imitating that practice would bring in a mixture of false religion. Therefore, bringing shame and dishonoring our head, Jesus Christ. Is this making sense? We need to keep in mind that Paul is responding to some of the pagan influences that existed in Corinth and is applying it to both men and women. Now look, listen to verse 5 and 6, or follow with me as I read them. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is, in, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off, her head shaved, then she should cover her head. In contrast to the men who were to have their heads uncovered, their wives, the the women, the wives, were to maintain the appropriateness of keeping their heads covered. In the Corinthian culture, context needed again, a woman covered her head as an indication of modesty and submission to her husband's authority. To uncover their heads would have sent the message that they were no longer regarding their husbands as head of their home. Gender roles would have been blurred. Sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? Bringing, therefore, dishonor on the husband and confusion to the congregation. Paul likens women with their heads uncovered to those with shaved heads. Well, what is that all about? You see, in their culture, a shocking image that it would have been. Paul's words are sharp. It is as if he is saying, if you're going to publicly communicate that the God divine ordained order in the family is no longer relevant to you, Why not go all the way and style your head, your hair like a man's? Typically, I think part of what's going on here, typically, you guys know this, men go bald. Not all, but some do, and and women don't. You see the difference here, okay? It could be that Paul himself is a bald man. But note here that Paul may also be referring to a custom in the Mediterranean world in the first century that adulterous women, when caught and when being punished, had their heads shaved as part of their punishment because that represented shame and disgrace in that culture. Also in Paul's culture, And here's where you really kind of 
I think hopefully really gets clear and begins to make sense of why, why Paul is saying what he's saying in this letter here. Also in that culture, first century, a shaved head was also a sign of looseness as well as prostitution. Remember, the temple of Aphrodite is in Corinth. And so, therefore, adding to the shame and the disgrace of a woman. Now, after presenting God's divine order, Paul moves into what he is always moving into, God's divine word. Okay, as he's going to support this with scripture. Verses 7 through 10. A man ought not to cover his head since, and here it is, since he is the image and the glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Paul supports, again, his teaching with Scripture. And if he didn't track with that, and we're going to be moving this in a, into in a moment here, he's, he just took everybody in this letter, as he just taken us, to Genesis chapter 2, which is where he's drawing his support from with regards to Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. A man, Paul supports it with this, and a man must seek to bring honor rather than shame to his authority, whom is Jesus Christ. Why? Because in the order of creation, he is called to function as, as he puts here, the image and glory of God. Men, That is to be a description of us, the image and the glory of God. Remember, to cover his head would draw confusion and ridicule on the man, which would reflect poorly on the reputation of our Savior because of the pagan practices that would have been confused with. The Genesis account as we are familiar with, tells us that God created man first, Genesis 2-7. And then after giving Adam the responsibility of taking care of the garden, Genesis 2-15, God makes Eve from Adam's rib as a suitable helper, it is says, Genesis 2-18. She too would participate in the work not as the head of the family, but alongside her husband. The word helper in Genesis 2, 18, I don't know if you were aware of this, it is actually the very first descriptive term in the Bible used for woman. Very first term, descriptive term. And it does not Referred to, it does not describe a second-rate citizen, person. Helper is not a term of inferiority. It is a term of equality, actually. <laughs> it 
In fact, it implies that left to himself, Adam alone was insufficient to accomplish everything God wanted to accomplish. So back in Genesis, when God is looking down on his creation and he makes this statement, it is not good that Adam should be alone. What was he saying? Adam, <laughs> you need help. <laughs> and so the descriptive that God gives for the woman is helper, a term of equality. Paul explains that in light of the biblical order of creation, and the distinct but inseparable roles of men and women as, both now, not just the man, as image bearers of God. Both now, okay? Wives in Paul's culture should have literally, he says, authority over their own head. What's he talking about? Here, Paul is pointing beyond the head covering which would have been a cultural symbol for the woman, a veil to, um, to that which is, it represents. Not talking about the veil itself, but to what the veil represents. An attitude of submission to God-ordained authority. We have already been told by Paul, he said it to the Colossians as well, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. To the Colossians, in a passage where he is bringing instruction to the Christian household, he basically says the same thing. Kind of like maybe even thinking a little bit more about the woman at this point than the man because women might be thinking, hey, you're asking me to submit to this guy and he is no Jesus. <laughs> and Paul says there's an answer for that. Everything that you do you do for the glory of God. In Colossians, he speaks to them and says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Why? Because all of us are image bearers of our God. And what kind of image, church, do we want to be reflecting in our world? And so, in other words, there should be no contradiction between the woman's inward attitude and her outward appearance shown with a combination of both humility and modesty as well. Paul is indicating that he wants the woman to act responsibly because she too is representing the image of God. Now we come to this last part of verse 10, because of the angels. And here again, the commentators and Bible scholars through the years, really centuries now, have really aren't real, real sure about what Paul intended with this. A lot of ideas exist, as you might not be surprised by. But, you know, after suggesting that the presence of angels as spectators in the church worship is probably more than likely what was intended by Paul. One commentator sums it up as he writes this. Angels are hypersensitive about things being done in order. Why? They saw one-third of their company cast out of heaven after one of them said, 
I want to do my own thing. I want to be like God. Therefore, the covering on the head of a woman who is praying or prophesying, and please note with me just real briefly, Paul does not prohibit a woman from praying or speaking in church. In the first century, not prohibited. Just If you're going to do it, ladies, just don't do it like so it would bring confusion, bring in pagan practice, shame, and disgrace to the church and to the body of Christ. So when you're praying or prophesying in the congregation and your head is covered, it is a sign to the angels that she is not out of order, but that she does so under the authority of her very own husband. So God's divine order, followed by God's divine word, will produce God's divine balance. Our God's a God of balance. Amen? Look at verse 11 and 12 with me. It says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Paul knew that his statements on the roles of men and women could very easily be misconstrued, misunderstood, and maybe even abused. So he qualifies what he has said with an expression, in the Lord. You see that there, right? His intention is to identify people who are in and part of the body of Christ. Paul brought two considerations to the forefront here as he's doing this. First, neither husbands nor wives are independent from each other. Second, lest anyone mistake his description of headship that he brought in verse 3, Paul made it clear that Woman slash wives also have a relationship with God. And he reminded the Corinthians that everything comes from God. In other words, the fact that Eve came from Adam's rib does not contradict the fact that God himself made her and created her. It wasn't Adam that did it. God did it just as God created Adam God creates woman. From the side of man, woman was made. From the woman, however, man is born. Right? Both are of and made by God. Both are vital to his body and to his purposes on this planet. Both men and women are absolutely essential, therefore, to reflect God's image and glory. It takes both species, <laughs> both genders, to get it done and to get it done with balance, divine balance in this world on his behalf. The woman is an essential invaluable part of God's plan. In his plan, men and women are spiritual equals possessing differing roles in the marriage relationship, but equal nonetheless. 
Again, providing that God intended balance. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul appeals to what we might call today common sense. Not from a humanistic, secular perspective, but from a wise, spirit-filled kind of perspective. In light of urgings from theology and scripture, he wants the Corinthians to judge for themselves whether it is proper in their cultural context for a woman to pray in church with her head uncovered. The, the answer is obviously no, not a good idea, not recommended. That would send the wrong message. We do not want to be sending the wrong message, right, church? Keep in mind, Paul is speaking into a very pagan first century Corinth culture. In most cultures throughout history, a woman's hair has been her glory, regarded as a feature of beauty. However, in Paul's day, within the Roman Empire, long hair for men, you might find this surprising, first century Roman Empire, which Corinth is a part of, long hair for men was considered effeminate and even lended itself towards homosexuality as can be seen from Corinthian statues dating back to that time period. Again, you can see how that would be bringing confusion, shame, and disgrace upon the body of Christ, not to mention our Lord and Savior. So widespread was the cultural symbol of the head covering as a sign of decency and modesty and submission to headship that Paul could confidently say that those who would seek to reject the practice would be going against what wise Christians throughout the Mediterranean world in that day were doing, which would, there again, be the cause for confusion to those outside in the world who were looking in and watching. So I think it no surprise that because I have emphasized, because I think the word of God emphasizes here, the culture in which Paul is initially writing to is no longer the culture in which we live, correct? So therefore I think the, you know, the, that's why we don't wear veils and we're not wearing, you know, the, the hats and that sort of thing. And because it just doesn't necessarily apply to us in this way, it was necessary in that unique culture because of what it represented. We're in a different culture. I do believe this, though. And here's where it's important. And here's where it's relative to us. I believe that we need to apply the principles underlying Paul's instructions. Okay. It's the principle that we want to make sure we do, do not miss here. Now, we may want to consider asking ourselves this 
this question. If Paul were to step into our churches today, if he was to walk into any of our churches here in America anyway today, what visible signs of order and submission would he find? Would he see? As we seek to apply God's, uh, excuse me, Paul's underlying doctrines to our context, which come from God, we should keep, I think, some principles in mind as we want to apply the, what Paul has been bringing to us in terms of what is relevant for us in this. First, we need to remember that matters of fashion and style are culturally conditioned and personally applied. In other words, in my life and in your life, we have seen all kinds of fashions come and go, haven't we? And then come back again. <laughs> you can search your entire Bible and you won't find a scissor length for haircuts, nor will you find a knee rule for skirts. Our style should be all about humility and modesty as we strive to communicate to others who are on the outside what is true about us, what is to be true about us on the inside, displaying the image and the glory of our God. Amen. Amen. Second, we need to keep in mind that our style should reflect our Christian identity. When it comes to our physical appearance, hairstyle, jewelry, clothing, cosmetics, and even our body art, you know what that is, right? Do we make decisions based on the goal of glorifying God? Is that what that is all about? Do we make decisions based on that? Or do we seek to point people to him or to us? Are we trying to display our own individual independence and personality or to reflect his character and his values? Finally, we should willingly adapt our styles to glorify God and him alone. This means consciously deciding to let go of your own image for his image. Amen? Since others are watching and forming opinions, be sure that you are adapting a style which is a reflection of the Jesus inside of you in order to reflect God's glory and not your own. Amen. We are called to be image bearers of our God. My opinion here, I think in part, the reason that we are in the mess that we are in today is because we have been failing at properly displaying and bearing the image 
of our God because we've made it all about us and not him. May that cease and may we take to heart the mission, if you will, of reflecting our king. Amen. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word and how at times it sometimes comes across as more instructional than it is inspirational, but instruction from God's word is always inspirational. We miss that sometimes because of a thing called conviction. Many of us sometimes, we, we don't like being told that we need to be concerned about some change. That possibly we've been doing things that have been for us and about us and that we have lost sight of the importance of what you have called us to be more than anything. Not putting our own image out there, but yours. And reflecting you and our behavior and with our attitudes and our worship and our service and our denying ourselves and taking up our crosses and following you, Lord, loving you, surrendered to you, devoted to you more than anything on this planet. May our desire, may our hunger, and may our thirst be for you, God, not for this world, but for you. And help us, Lord, to take seriously the mission that you have placed upon us with regards to your divine order, and that is to bring you glory, bring you honor as we bear your image in a way that pleases you and honors you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will live